on and I turned myself off. All right, here we are. Thank you, Johnny and worship team for leading us in that. Uh, I get the privilege this week in uh, uh, completing, or almost completing, I guess we'll do the Christ candle on Christmas Eve, but the, the season of Advent. If you're unfamiliar with the term Advent, it simply means arrival. We use this season as a, almost a double uh, a, um, waiting as we are both reflecting on Jesus' arrival the first time. That is, we believe God of the universe, creator of all things seen and unseen, incarnate in flesh on this earth. But we are also looking forward as we anticipate his second arrival. We find ourselves between those two, often confused about why things happen this way or that, between his original coming and his second. This is the fourth of those weeks. We've looked at joy and hope and peace. And this week, we look at love. Love is a, a little bit confusing to get a handle on because any word that you can use to both describe the relationship you have with your spouse, your parent, and with pizza uh, is a hard thing to, to wrap our heads around, and yet we use love for all of those things. Frederick Beekner wrote a, a series of little devotional books, one of them entitled um, Wishful Thinking, he says this about love. The first stage is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The middle stage is to believe that there are many kinds of love and that the Greeks had a different word for each of them. But the last stage is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The unabashed eros of lovers, the sympathetic philia of friends, agape, giving itself away freely, no less for the murderer than for the victim. These are all varied manifestations of a single reality. To lose yourself in another's arms or in another's company or in suffering for all men who suffer, including the ones who inflict the suffering on you. To lose yourself in such ways is to find yourself. That's what it's all about. That's what love is. Love is this understanding that I am not first or even second, but that I am willing to pour myself out sacrificially for the sake of another. Luckily, the one who commanded us to love exhibited love in the perfect way. This morning, I want to look at one episode, though I'm going to argue later in this sermon that he does nothing outside of loving well. But one episode is found in Luke chapter 19. When you get there, you'll probably realize you're pretty familiar with Luke chapter 19. If you are not familiar, I think that's good. And actually, I think you might have a leg up on those of us who have heard this story hundreds of times. 
Because what you're going to see, obviously, is the love of Jesus displayed so eloquently and perfectly, it's impossible to miss. But for those of us who are overly familiar, I hope you will not relegate this to a child Sunday school story. It is so much greater than that. In fact, if you've heard it so many times that you begin to think that Zacchaeus is the main character in his story, then I think you've heard it too many times and maybe you've missed the point. Zacchaeus is number two on the call sheet. Jesus is the main character. One of the things that we don't often, I'm going to speak broad brush here, we don't often do well in the West, in evangelical church, is read huge chunks of Scripture. Even those of us who may have a quiet time usually uh, will use some sort of devotional guide and it will have you read a story or a chapter. But the idea of reading Scripture for 45 minutes to an hour, reading large chunks, is foreign to most of us. Unfortunately, reading this section in a large chunk uh, opens it up a lot that I think you'll notice a couple things. One, he is passing through Jerusalem here. If you read from 16 on, you're going to see action after action after action. And you go, well, all verbs are actions. Yes, but there's not a lot of sitting, not a lot of dawdling, not a lot of pondering, not a lot of uh, uh, thinking. There's a lot of moving. Jesus is on a mission and he's actually seemingly in a hurry we're going to see immediate today this day hurry over and over in these few chapters Jesus is on a journey to get somewhere and on the way he is uh, having these episodes of miracles and parables some you're probably familiar with the rich man and Lazarus and the rich young ruler and now Zacchaeus He's just healed a blind man outside the gates of Jericho. And now Zacchaeus enters the scene with a, a few parallels. Zacchaeus can't see Jesus and neither can the blind man. The, the crowd serves as a hindrance as the blind man is calling out to Jesus. They're going, just be quiet, be quiet. He's, he's busy now. And Jesus is going to call both to himself to perform a miracle. Luke chapter 19 starting in verse 1. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. 
Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. We know that. But we don't actually know much else about Zacchaeus. Not a great backstory. We don't have a lot of a background history about how he came to the place he is now. We don't know if it was out of resentment for being bullied as a small child for being so little that he uh, began to, to build up resentment for his peers. And as soon as he found a way out, he jumped on the bandwagon to serve the Romans in this way. We don't know if maybe he was poor. That was uh, me. When I was growing up, I thought, I just want a job where I can buy whatever I want because I couldn't when I was a kid, so I'll do that. Maybe that was Zacchaeus. He said, I'll just do whatever it takes to make money. And we don't know if Zacchaeus thought, I'm going to be a tax collector, but I'm going to treat my people right. I'm going to charge them exactly what the Romans charge them. Maybe enough just so that I can make a living. But after that, I'm going to stop. We don't know much about Zacchaeus. But what we do know is he was a tax collector, became the chief tax collector, and now he is rich. You can almost hear the street gossip, right? As the wagons pull up to Zacchaeus' house as his business starts to take off, right? Unloading furniture that none of them could afford, but Zacchaeus has it. Or as he walks the streets of Jericho in the finest cloth that they can't afford. But here's Zacchaeus flaunting around in his fancy clothes. Or Zacchaeus out at the market buying meat enough to to have a feast that nobody's going to go to because he doesn't have friends, but he buys it anyways. Can you believe that? He's buying it with our money. He has no right to do that, and yet there is nothing we can do about it. Zacchaeus is rich and reviled. And somehow he hears Jesus is coming to town. I never quite understood how people heard about what was going on all these places. And then uh, I went to Brazil my sophomore year. We spent three weeks on the Amazon River and we would uh, be in a village and then overnight while we slept, we would boat to another village and we would uh, minister there and then we'd boat. And every time we would get there and there would be people waiting for us, not from that village, but from smaller villages that had canoed miles that morning because they heard we were coming. I don't know how they heard he was coming, but, but he hears Jesus is coming. I don't know what he had heard about Jesus, but surely if you know Jesus is coming, if he's the talk of the town, surely some of his teachings had come up and he's got a lot to say about the rich. He's got a lot to say about how we treat people. And yet, despite all that, Zacchaeus can't get over the fact. This guy's coming, and I've got to see him. So much so that this wee little man is going to hike up his overcoat, run, and climb a tree. How embarrassing, a grown man. We have expectations even in the West, right? We have expectations here that children act like children and adults act like adults. If you see somebody you're impressed with, you don't run across the restaurant, you don't interrupt their dinner and say, can I please have an autograph if you're an adult? Your eight-year-old can do that, but you can't do that. That'd be embarrassing. And yet, here's Zacchaeus, the richest man in town, sprinting, 
right? This crowd starts to form and nobody is going, hey, hey guys, Zacchaeus is a little shorter. Let's make some room, get him to the front. He's not going to be able to see if we leave him back there. Nobody. In fact, you can almost, if you listen closely, you can almost hear the snickers going, hey, hey look, look at Zacchaeus. He's, he's running down the street. Oh, he's not going to climb that tree. Oh my, he's, he's climbing the tree. Tapping people on the Look, 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 look. Zacchaeus. Oh, Mr. Fancy Zacchaeus is climbing a tree. How embarrassing. But Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. And maybe more baffling than that. Rich man wants to see a famous man. Maybe that's not all that surprising. Jesus wants to see Zacchaeus. Doesn't just want to speak to him on the street. Jesus does that a lot. Jesus could have done everything he did right there at the sycamore tree. He could have said, Zacchaeus, come down because salvation has come to you today. He's done it before. He could do it again. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and get down. I'm coming over for dinner. Now, when somebody with honor sits with someone who doesn't, they bestow honor on the person that they are with. And so right now, we have the most honorable man elevating a grown man who would stoop down to behave like a child. That's what Jesus does. Jesus elevates the stooped. And according to Scripture, he will stoop those who want to elevate themselves. He says, come down. I'm coming over for dinner. And boy, this got under the crowd's skin. And they start to grumble. But if you've read large sections of Luke, you know what comes next. Jesus is going to now teach. But who speaks up but Zacchaeus? Right? You can almost hear them going, Zacchaeus, be quiet. You're not the teacher. Let Jesus speak. He's the honorable one in your house. Be quiet. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus lets Zacchaeus speak, and Zacchaeus proclaims, unprompted, and to assume anything else is just conjecture, to offer half of his riches and four times any money he extorted from those in Jericho. And Jesus responds, today, salvation has entered this house. Now, I want to be very clear about the order of things. It was not Zacchaeus does something good, Jesus gives him a good reward in return, and he gets salvation. Salvation entered the house when salvation invited himself over. When Jesus says, I'm coming over, and he steps foot in that house, that's the moment 
that salvation enters the house and Zacchaeus responds in the only appropriate way when we're face to face with Jesus. And that is action of self-sacrificial love on behalf of others. I suspect we've got some Zacchaeuses in the room. Years, maybe decades in sin, pursuing riches and status and, and, and power. And one day, at your Damascus Road, confronted with the gospel, boldly declared that I'm going to live differently from now and you have. But I also know I'm at First Baptist Church downtown and I suspect we've got a lot of crowd folk here too. And I want to warn you, this crowd, not long ago, one chapter as we have it written in our Bible, praised Jesus when he healed the blind man, are now grumbling because he would have anything to do with Zacchaeus. If we're not careful, we might miss the saving power of Jesus because of our own individual hatred for the people that he is working in. Jesus shouldn't work in those people. If they were serious, they would be acting like this. If Zacchaeus, I mean, there's somebody there going, well, if Zacchaeus was serious, he'd have given it all away, 50%. If he was serious about this, he'd give it all away and he'd go with Jesus, but instead he's gonna live in that comfy house as long as he lives. He probably did. Right, there are people in there going, no, 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 no. Years and years and years of being mean, you don't get to say one nice thing and I flip the script and go, oh, he's a good guy now. Prove it. Right, if we're not careful, crowd, crowd, if we are not careful, we will miss the saving act of Jesus because of our own individual vitriol for the people that Jesus would save. Now that's embarrassing. You can run all you want, climb as many trees as you want. There's nothing more embarrassing than the people of God who have received the free gift of salvation being angry that he would be so willing to give it to somebody else that I don't like. Now that's embarrassing. That's childish. The love of God is big enough that there are no parameters around who he can say and how he can do it. Frederick Lehman was a, a businessman who, because he was a bad businessman, was a no longer a businessman and was now packing oranges in a, a factory. And he went to Sunday night church and he heard a sermon about the love of God and he was so blown away that he just could not get this out of his mind. As a hobbyist songwriter, he began to pin the words to a hymn. First verse, done. Second verse, done. And then just couldn't quite figure out a way to, to wrap it up. And then he remembered that a friend had given him a bookmark with a poem on it. This poem was written by a prisoner. Which prisoner? We don't know. Which prison? We don't know. 
A prisoner was no longer in a cell. A, a, a worker in the prison went to go repaint the walls and saw this poem, recorded it. Somehow it got to Frederick Lehman's friend. Somehow it got to Frederick Lehman. He now has a bookmark with his poem and he wrote the words as they were which became the third stanza in a hymn called The Love of God. And this is what he says about the love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. There are no parameters on the love of God or how he would bestow it or to whom he would bestow it. If we're not careful, we can box God's love up enough that if we really started to Pick apart those layers. What you'd find out is nobody's fit for salvation but me. They couldn't believe it. Do they know what kind of man? Does does he know what kind of man Zacchaeus is? He just made one. He hadn't even done it yet. He just declared it. That doesn't count. But today... Salvation has entered this house. You know what Jesus did in that moment? He took a camel and shoved it through the eye of a needle. Just a chapter before, the scariest story in Scripture. I would argue without a close second, the story of the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, what must I do to obtain salvation? Jesus says, you got to follow the commandments. He says, boom, check, done. He says, okay, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It says the man walks away sad, devastated. Actually, the word used there for sad used twice. Gethsemane, the rich young ruler. And then the really scary part. Jesus doesn't go get him. Jesus doesn't holler at him and go, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. If you, if you, wait, 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 let me, let me rephrase it so that I can show you I didn't actually want you to give it all away. I just wanted you to be willing to give it all away. He doesn't say, hey, okay, you won't give it all. That's fine. Let's do 50% now, 50% in five years. He doesn't say that. He lets him walk away. And he turns to his disciples and they go, well, if this guy can't get in, who can get in? And Jesus says some harsh words. It'd be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man get into heaven. And boy, in the West, we had a heyday with that. We went, well, what it means is. That's the entrance to, it's a, it's a low gate. And if a camel would, would kneel down, it could get through that gate. You know the only way to make that tr- interpretation work? If you just stop reading. Because Jesus makes it clear what he is proposing is not 
For a rich man to get into heaven, it's really, really hard, but it's easier with God. He says, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He's just done the impossible. This is the correct response to salvation. The rich young ruler walks away sad. Zacchaeus says, I'll I'll do whatever it takes to be with Jesus. Now maybe you're still going, I I don't understand what this has to do with love. Jesus is going to finish with what I would consider the most loving action of God. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Now when I say it's the most loving action of God, that's a little bit cheating. Because I'm going to argue it's the only action God has ever made. When God allowed the Israelites to be captured by the Babylonians, it was in an effort to seek and save the lost. When God established his covenant with Abraham, it was to seek and save the lost. When God created man in the garden, it was to seek and save the lost all the way through. When Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, it was to seek and save the lost. When, when Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, it was to seek and save the lost. It is the most loving action of God because I would argue it is the only action of God. That every action God has ever made has been to remedy the broken, fallen world that sin has ruptured. Every action that that God has done since the fall of man has been to reestablish unity between man and God. And here's the hard part. It's easy to understand how Jesus did it for 33 years. It's much more challenging to understand how Jesus has done it since because the way that Jesus has done it since is by giving you and I a helper, we refer to it as the Holy Spirit, to continue the thing that Jesus began. The most loving thing that you can do is to seek out people who do not know Jesus and point them towards their Creator. Right? And that manifests itself in a, a thousand different ways. It's broadly what we mean by on mission where our feet are. We are on the exact same mission that Jesus was on. Because until he chooses to change his modus operandi, until he chooses to change the way in which he functions in this world, you and I are the primary conduit of God's love to humanity. Can God save people through dreams and visions? Absolutely. I'm going to tell him he can't. Can God save people through visions and things like that? Absolutely. Can he he save people through voice in the clouds? Absolutely. But until he gives us a different directive, you and I have the responsibility and privilege of being on the exact same mission 
Jesus begun 2,000-ish years ago. Go, therefore, he would say, making disciples, teaching them all the things that I've taught you, telling them about this love we can't even describe, telling them about this God who's, who's too big for words. But that's the mission we've been given. That's the directive. The Son of Man showed us the way, and now we have to walk in it. Not most of the time, not every once in a while, not when it's convenient, but in all things that we do. We have a mission. We have the opportunity to play a role. And you want to go, what's the, the percentage of my role in Jesus' role? Uh, I don't know, but I know that he's called me to play some sort of role in the ministry of reconciliation for man to God. And I have a responsibility and a privilege to love people in such a way that they would not be impressed with me, but that they would be captivated by my Savior. This Christmas season, we're week of, I hope you knew that, we're Christmas week now. And as we approach and reflect on the gravity of the incarnation and what the incarnation tells us about the amount of love the God of the universe, creator of all things seen and unseen, has for you and for me. I hope you will both be drawn to reverence for who God is, but I hope you will also be drawn to action. Loving people well. Elevating those who are stooped. Reconciling those who are hurting. Applying the salve that is Jesus to the wounds of a broken, messed up world. That's an incredibly difficult task. Daunting. Where do you even start? Start with the Zacchaeuses around you. Find the people who so desperately want to see Jesus, even if they don't know why, and point them to how great he is. Let's pray. God, you are good, and you're for our good. We're so grateful for that truth. Forgive us when we take it for granted. God, I pray that you would do something in and through the lives of the people in this room. As we leave this place and go to our, our homes and visit families and leave this, this city spread out around it, 
that we can't take credit for. God, I pray that you would do something so big, our only explanation would simply be God did that. Amen.